Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'm Christine Burns, and as I explained in last week's episode, I'm revamping some interesting interviews of mine from another channel for a couple of weeks whilst I deal with a family bereavement. Next week, things will be back to normal, with a series of items coming up based on presentations from a recent Department of Health Mental Health Equality conference. Before then, however, this week's interview is in very much the same area as the previous item with Professor Stephen Whittle. Like Stephen, Mark Rees is a transsexual man whose transition took place in the early 1970s. The story of his dawning realisation of his masculine identity and the struggle to express that is told through his original autobiography, Dear Sir or Madam, which will shortly be republished in a greatly revised form. In the mid-1980s, Mark became the first transsexual person to pursue a case all the way to the European Court of Human Rights for the right to change his birth certificate. Although that bid was unsuccessful, he carried on looking for support and, in 1992, he became one of the co-founders of the campaign group Press for Change. Persuading Mark to be interviewed wasn't easy at first. He tends to be modest about his own achievements. We eventually met in the coffee shop at the Friends Meeting House on Euston Road in London. Squeezing ourselves into a quiet corner beside the web surfers, I began by asking him about his childhood. Mark, you were born in 1942. Tell us about your childhood. Was it, was it a happy time in your life? Um, I, I think generally it was, though I was ill for quite a long time. But I think my early childhood was reasonably happy I mean I wasn't conscious of any great problems at that time that became acute much later um, but many many trans people sometimes say they trace their awareness to their early childhood so that, that wasn't like that for you then well not acutely I just assumed that everybody wanted to be a boy and of course at that time we're talking about the 1950s um, transsexualism wasn't known about. I mean, some experts knew about it, presumably, but generally people didn't know about it and it wasn't talked about. And I, I was just regarded as a tomboy, and that was, that was accepted. Were you, were you the only child in your family? No, I had a twin sister who died at ten days, and I had a younger sister. She was about three years younger than I was. So, when you grew up, you went into the Navy. Was that some sort of means of escape or maybe a means to accommodate your masculine identity? It was partly, I think. Uh, my father was in the Merchant Navy and that was the closest I could get because I had great ideas of going to sea. I think I'm quite glad now I didn't. I probably would have been seasick before they left port. Um, so, I, I, I joined the, uh, the Wrens, as it then was. And... Partly it was because I could be disguised, because by that time, in my very late teens, early twenties, of course I was aware that something was very wrong. How did you feel that awareness? Um, well, I just felt, it sounds awfully hackneyed, doesn't it? We all say, I felt I was in the wrong body. Um, I didn't sort of gel in with society I didn't behave as people expected me to I didn't have the tastes people expected me to have Did you have any idea that there might be other people who felt the same way as you? 
No, I didn't. As I said, there was very little known about it then, or publicly known. Um, and for a long time, I, I felt as if I were the only one on the earth like it. Um, and then, as I got older and started to hear about homosexuality, I assumed, wrongly as it happened, that I was some odd kind of homosexual. You were nearly 30 when you actually transitioned in 1971. How difficult was that in those days? A lot more difficult than it is today, that, that's um, for certain. Um, it was a very, a very long time before I was able to get help, and I was 28 by the time I actually met uh, a specialist who, who could help me and change roles. So up till then, my late teens and 20s especially were very difficult. Um, but I did have great support from the medical people once it was decided. Um, I think probably the most difficult thing was dealing with the rest of the world. You say you had great support what, what, from the medical people. What sort of form did that take then? Well, the doctor I saw, he supported my um, role changing so far as he wrote to the university authorities because by that time I was at um, the university. So he supported me there and he gave me the address of a lawyer to see regarding a change of name deed. Um, and I was given support by people round about at home once they knew. So your, your family was supportive of you? Well, my father was dead by that time, so I don't know how he would have reacted. My mother said, oh, he would have reacted badly, but I, I wouldn't like to make assumptions about that. You just never know. Um, my sister gave me support. Um, the neighbours gave me support. And one neighbour's comment was, well, we've always known anyhow. So how did you experience life in the 60s? In the 60s, uh, difficult because that's, that was my 20s. It was difficult. Um, I, I think in some way I became almost reclusive because uh, people used to make comments about my ambiguous gender, especially kids. Mind you, they still do it from time to time. What sort of things would they say? Um, well, I, I remember one particular lad shouted across our local high street when you're going to change sex, Brenda. So, in a way, the world couldn't wait for you to change? <laughs> well, I don't think really many people who knew me closely were surprised. I'm certain of that. And in fact, some people said afterwards they felt more comfortable with me. But they'd always been aware that something was not quite right, but they couldn't put their finger on it. So... How, how long did that transition take for you then and what sort of form did it sort of take in terms of how you then presented? Well, to start with, I saw the psychiatrist, of course, um, and I was about to go to university and I wondered whether to change before going to university, but I talked about it with him and it would have meant a great change quickly. So I did a year at university and then with his support and the great support of the Dean of our faculty um, I changed roles in 1971 and I went back to university as Mark Now, in terms of being able to actually go about your life as Mark, were there, were there things that got in the way? I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm working towards the question of 
because you, you then took a case to the European Court of Human Rights and you started that yes. around 1974? No, no, not that early. I, th- I, I started campaigning in 1972 with a few blasts at various MPs. I was still at Birmingham then. Um, um, I didn't realise before I started changing roles that I couldn't have my birth certificate changed. Um, that was not uppermost in my mind. It was never mentioned. But when I went to have my ne- change of name deed, the solicitor told me that. He said, you can change every document except this one. And I, I started to think about it. And then I realised what consequences it could have so I started, as I say, sending letters to MPs and that sort of thing. But what really pushed me was that I'd then moved on to another college and I was studying um, religious studies in English. And I was very involved with the church and I, I felt that I might have a call to the ministry, the ordained ministry. Um, and then I discovered that because I was legally female and the church didn't at that time ordain women, I was barred from it. Um, but at the same time, because I was ostensibly male, I couldn't feel able to join the movement for the ordination of women and, and wave a banner with them, so I, I felt rather alone on that. But I, d- I did um, batter the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he wrote me a very nice letter, you know, regretting that was the case, and I thought, this is going to ruin my career. So that's when I really started moving things in earnest. Because lots of trans people followed you to the European Court of Human Rights, um, but you were the first. Did you feel when you actually took that case that you had a chance of success? I hoped I would have. Um, I certainly wasn't going to give up for fear of um, not getting it. I was determined that I was going to go through with it. Um, I know people think I'm quite quiet, but I can be quite bloody-minded when I put my mind to it, and I was determined that I was going to give the government a good kick up the backside, even if I didn't get it. And I, I felt, especially after we lost, that something had been started, and it wasn't a wasted effort. I didn't feel that at any point. I didn't feel that we'd wasted all our time, because it was a long time. I mean, it was 1979 when I first saw the solicitor, 1984 when I went to the commission um, in Strasbourg, 1986 when I went to the court hearing. So it was quite a time, um, but I still think it was worthwhile. It started things going. Yes, indeed. What about the Allies? Because I think a lot of Allies emerged as a result of the case, didn't they? Well, I did have some people contacting me, yes. Um, and I think Stephen contacted me. Stephen Whittle. Yes, Stephen Whittle, around about that time, maybe a bit later, before he was out. Um, And I began to think, well, I'm not on my own after all. Um, Because that that was one big thing I I had felt for years, that I was fighting on my own. Though I did meet meet Caroline Cossey, and I said to her, we ought to get a group going, and she thought that was a good idea, but nothing much came of it then. But that did happen, as we know. Well, I can say that moves us on very neatly to, to the history of, of Press for Change, in which you were very much involved in the foundation there. Tell us how that happened. Well, I, as I said, I wrote to lots of MPs, and one MP, Simon Hughes, I wrote to, and he passed my letter on to Alex Carlyle. Now, 
it was ironic because out of the blue I had a letter of support from Alex wishing me well for the case of Strasbourg and at that very day I'd heard that I'd lost so of course I wrote to him immediately and we then set up a correspondence and, and things moved on and then I asked if we could have a meeting at um, the the Liberal Democrat Conference. Just, just to interrupt there, Alex Carlyle, of course, is not only a QC, but was also at the time the Liberal Democrats' Home Affairs spokesman, is that correct? I think he was then, yes. Yes, and he was tremendously supportive. And he did say that he'd not thought too much about the situation before, but my letter really got him moving, which I thought was quite a compliment. And he was tremendously supportive. Anyhow, I decided that I'd have a... Um, a fringe meeting at the Liberal Democrat conference in 1991 and I'd got the backing of my Liberal Democrat friends from Tunbridge Wells and Alex said well normally it has to be a, a proper group to have a, a fringe meeting but he would support me so with his support I booked a hotel room and at that time I was out of work and I thought I must be mad you know but anyhow I thought go ahead go ahead um, and then I contacted other people like Stephen, people who'd come out of the woodwork, so to speak, after my case. I contacted them, and we gathered in um, Bournemouth and had that first fringe meeting. And I thought, right, we've got a nucleus here. And then I... Just, just for that for a second, what was the reaction to that fringe meeting? Well, Alex made sure we had plenty of people coming along from the, the media. He wasn't so concerned with the Liberal Democrats, I don't think. He wanted good media coverage. And there was a really nasty comment by Claudia Fitzherbert in the Telegraph. And Alex wrote to me afterwards and said he was incandescent with rage. But I'd primed my friend Liz Hodgkinson, who did an excellent piece for, the, I think it was the Times. And generally, the coverage was sympathetic. And then we, we thought, well, we've got to move on from here. And I got in touch with Alex again and said, could we have a meeting with you with the thought of forming a group? And he very kindly offered us his room in the House of Commons and we went and met him. And then we thought, thought we were really going to get something going. And he finished with us because he had other things to do and suggested we go across the road. I think it was Grandma Moses. Um, across the road from the House of Commons, a cafe. So we went in there and we said, well, we must have a name for this group. And somebody said, well, Press for Change. And that, that was the birth of Press for Change. So who was there at that time? I think Stephen was... If I would go through all my papers, I'd probably be able to tell you exactly. I think Mika Scott was. Um, <laughs> but one or two others who dropped off the radar, so to speak. But the first thing Alex told us to do was to... We were near a general election, and he told us to make sure there was a letter on every new MP's desk, or every MP's desk, uh, for the next Parliament. So I think it was a weekend or so later, I went up to Hackney with one or two others. And I think it was Linda Brown. We went to her flat, and I went two days running from Kent, and we spent the whole day signing letters to all these MPs, over 500. Um, and Alex said, you'll be lucky if you get, well, I think, 30 back. But anyhow, we did get some replies back. Because, of course, this was days before email when people did their activism by post and licking stamps. 
That's right, it was a big stamp-licking job because we wanted to deliver them all in one go, but that we had to put stamps on them all and post them. So that was a bit of an expense, but people just popped up and made donations, so we were able to carry on. Did you have any idea how, how pioneering what you were doing really was in those days? No, I didn't really. I was just charging on. You know, let's get moving. We must do something. And did you, did you have some sort of vision about what might be achievable? Well, I felt sure we would get there eventually. Um, as the government lawyer, in my case, said in private, <laughs> that um, he felt sure it would come. That the only question was when. And I felt sure once it had been aired, people wouldn't drop it. You know, we'd pick the ball up and the, the ball would get carried for some long time. And indeed it did. But you then went on to specialise in particular areas. So t tell us about those. I'm thinking of things like the Samaritans you were very involved with. Well, I used to be a Samaritan in my former role. Um, I think that was really to try and take my mind over off my own troubles, which isn't uncommon, is it? And then I, I left it when I went to university. Um, but quite to my amazement, I had an invitation from the Northumberland Samaritans, the no northeast region, to go and address them. And this was thanks to a Franciscan friar friend of mine. And he, I thought, you've dropped me right in it because I'd never given a talk before. I didn't think I'd be any good at it. But I thought, well, okay, here goes. So off I went to Northumberland and that started a whole spate of talks of Samaritans. And I have actually talked to three Samaritan national conferences in, in York, which I thought was a great privilege. I mean, I was surprised at one. I was even more surprised at two. But when they invited me for a third time, I was absolutely cop-smacked. But I always had a great reception. But that's changed now. I, I haven't done anything with the Samaritans for quite a long time now. I suppose they've changed leadership and that sort of thing. And I think I've dropped off their screen. But now I have spoken to the police um, four times locally for their diversity training. That dropped out of the blue as well but as for the church well as I indicated I had been involved with the church and what surprised me was how badly um, people in our situation were treated by some parts of the church that had not been my experience I've been treated very well I've had tremendous support from the church and it saddened me that people were treated so badly by people purporting to be Christians and I think to myself, well, they need some education. Do you think the moderate Christians could do a lot more to perhaps you know, explain that the church is more accepting than perhaps other elements might indicate? Well, I think, as is always the case with all things, it, it is the extremists who cause problems, the fundamentalists, you know, whether it's political or whatever. And then I think there's a moderate mass. And as I say, the the people I mix with are very accepting. I'm not going to say tolerant. They don't tolerate us. They accept us. And now, of course, we have the example of Sarah Jones, who was ordained, uh, and the bishop knew about her situation, and I think that was absolutely wonderful. It's slightly different from somebody changing when they're already in the ministry. That has happened several times. And here again, some of them have had a really bad time. Um, but 
I think the Bishop of Hereford is to be congratulated on his stance, and he stuck up for her, and that, that was tremendous. Um, all the people I meet are supportive. Now, as you know, I have been doing a theology course, and I didn't go there intending to reveal my situation, but it one day in class, the, it was a pastoral studies class, the tutor talked about you may come across very unusual things in your ministry, you have to be prepared for anything. And said, for example, I was vicar in a church and the organist announced he was transsexual and was going to change. And I thought, my God, is, is somebody telling me something? And I went home and I thought about it and I thought, they don't need to know. Then I thought, actually, they do. So I wrote to the tutor and told her this was my condition. I didn't want to intrude on her curriculum or lesson plans or anything, but if she felt it might be helpful for me to answer questions, I would be happy to do so. Well, she gave me half the lesson, half the lecture session one evening. And they were great. They They were very, very sympathetic, and they said how grateful they were to me for doing this, because now they would know how to cope whereas beforehand they wouldn't have done then I went back the next year with a different group and blow me the subject came up again but the tutor then already knew this was a different tutor and they knew about it the the tutors did know about it by now and the tutor actually asked me if I would talk about it which I did and now they keep saying, when's your book going to be published, Mark? Because they want to read my book. So. Now, you, you originally published a book some, some time ago. This is, this is a new book, isn't it? It's the old book, updated and revised, because, of course, when, I, when it was published by Castle, 19, early 1996, I mean, press for change had only been going for four years. So much hadn't happened, and so much has happened since, which is... Good, good things have happened since. Um, and the book did end on rather a negative note personally also. So it went out of print four years ago, and there wouldn't be print, so I thought I'd well, blow that. <laughs> so I'm going to do it myself. And I've got lots of people asking for it already, you know, the police and my clerical friends and all kinds of people. So I hope that will be helpful to people. Is there a new title for the new book, or is it Dear Sir or Madam? I think it's a good idea to keep the same title, don't you? It's a good title, isn't it? Now, you're pushing retirement age now, but your, your retirement prospects have been rather complicated by your, your legal status, and you've been pushed into a bit of a catch-22 situation with legal recognition. Do you want to explain about that? Well, unfortunately, when the law was changed, I was um, then over 60, and I... Had so in the normal run of things, of course, as, as a woman, you would have retired? That's correct, because in law, um, I was female. Now, I had a bit of a dilemma about accepting a pension at 60. Um, but one of my friends said to me, the government's buggered you up. Well, grab it. And I thought, we're too right. And I had been ill too, and I thought, well, actually, if I put this off, I may not live to get it. So I grabbed it. So I've been ta- having the, the pension. But, of course, had I changed roles officially and re-registered as male, I would have lost it. And because I was only on part-time work, I was really glad of that extra money. So I thought, oh, well, I won't be able to do anything until I'm 65. 
And when your 61st birthday arrives, will you apply for legal recognition? Actually, I had my 65th birthday at the end of last year. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Happy birthday, in retrospectively, Mum. Um, I'm thinking about it, but to be honest, there's not the urgency now. The chances of my getting married are exceedingly unlikely. Um, you look very eligible. Well, I, I wish other. Well, I know I don't. I do wish other people would think the same way. I think it would be very difficult now to to live in a partnership of any kind. So I'm not particularly worried about it. But I might. I might not. But you're certainly not putting your feet up. Oh no, no. I'm still working at the moment, and I'm still involved with all sorts of theological goings on and community things in the village. And one last question. Um, if you could do anything differently, looking back, what would that have been? Well, it may seem odd, but it wouldn't have been anything to do with, with being transsexual. I thought about this on the train coming up, and I think what I would have liked to have done, I, I, I think I could have done without all those years trying to get into medicine, which I clearly wasn't suitable for because I was really arts-based. I should have gone straight doing an ordinary degree, English degree and theology. Um, and also, I should have practiced the piano when I was told to, and I should have learned a language. And they're the main things, I think. Mark, thank you very much.